Hey, we're in the book of Revelation tonight. If you need a Bible, I want to encourage you to download our app, Revelation chapter, chapter 1. Yes, I agree. That little voice back there. Revelation chapter 1 tonight. Great to see everybody. Thank you so much. And I love you too. I appreciate that. Need that. Definitely. Hey, this is a, such a great portion of scripture. And I remember uh, some years ago, long, long time ago, when I was in Bible college, my car broke down. And um, so I actually had to walk to the college um, to, get, to, to get to school. And it was not, this is like, we're talking Lake Arrowhead, uh, Twin Peaks er area. So this was not an easy walk. We lived right there on, um, on the uh, rim of the mountain, on the edge of the mountain. So, I mean, we're talking, I mean, I could, I could totally make a hyperbole out of this and say I walked five miles back and forth, um, but it wouldn't be totally true. It was probably more like two miles. No, it, but it was, a, it was like, this is rugged terrain, all right? It's steep. You, if you guys have ever been up to the top of the mountain, you know what I'm talking about. But what I did is um, I used that time to memorize Revelation chapter 1. And I know, not that I can remember any of it now, but um, it was some of the most useful um, time that, that I can remember at Bible college. And this particular portion of Revelation is just so worthy of your meditation. We're going to talk tonight about it. Uh, and, you know, frankly, for sure, this is true for all scripture. But, you know, in a sense, I, I do feel when I come to verses 12 uh, to 16, I feel like it is just holy ground. You know, we're looking at this beautiful revelation of the Lord and I think, you know, it's one of those scriptures that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. I'm saying all of that to say to you tonight, um, well, I'm blessed to have this time with you. I would really encourage you just to uh, spend some time meditating on these verses and really let them take root in your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, thank you so much for the revelation that you graciously gave to us concerning your son. He is beautiful beyond description. He is too marvelous for words. And we want our being to be more consumed by him. God, we know. We know there's more of us to be saturated. There's more of us to be impacted. God, more of our mind needs to be consecrated to him. He's worthy of more. We know that. We know that. And we ask, please, by a work of grace, as we turn our hearts to you, as we lean into these verses and into this book, that that would be the blessing that we would receive. We would receive more of Jesus. He alone is the one that we hunger for. And so tonight we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us to lead us and to guide us into all truth, that you would stir within us a hunger for your word as we take a deep dive into your scripture. God, may we be students of your word, rightly dividing the word of truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, a Sunday school teacher asked her little children as they were on the way to the church service, why is it necessary to keep quiet in church? And one little bright girl replied, because people are sleeping. And, <laughs> and you know, out of the mouth of babes, right? 
I mean, we laugh because sometimes it's just true. It's just true. We get, who said yep? We get tired. And I pray that, I pray you don't fall asleep tonight. Um, but I want to say this, you, you know, you can meet Jesus anywhere. We gather in church to meet Jesus Christ. I know that you don't gather to be entertained. I know that you don't come to hear some person's opinion. I know that you don't come just to sing melodies to songs that uh, you musically appreciate. No, you come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great thing about fellowshipping with the Lord is you can meet him anywhere. You can meet him in a church service and you can meet him when you are on, well, while you are in exile on the island of Patmos. I mean, I just want you to think about how glorious that truth is. Because, you know, sometimes, sometimes I do think as Christians, it's, we think it's got to be like the Garden of Eden to meet the Lord, you know? I mean, all of the circumstances need to just be absolutely perfect. And that's just not the truth. He, if we're willing, if we are willing, He will meet us anywhere. And that's what we see in John's life. We see a heart that really was willing to meet the Lord. You know, we uh, are technically beginning in verse 12. But I want to jump back to verse 10 and uh, just read up to verse 12. The Bible says this, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, and what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then he goes on to say, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw, number one, seven golden lampstands. You know, what I appreciate uh, about John is this. He really does give us a beautiful template to follow. Um, and I'm not saying today that if we follow John's template, that we will be inspired to write another book of the Bible too, because just in case you didn't know, the canon of scriptures closed. So if you think, uh, if you come to me and say, hey, pastor, you know, I, I got an addition to the word of God. It's, you know, it's second Fleshalonians. I say to you, <laughs> I say to you, heretic, get out of our church. That's what, that's what I say to you. But I, but I am saying he does lay down a, a pattern for us to follow in this. Number one, he heard, you know, he heard, he was willing to hear, and I think that when we are, like, like it says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice, right? So, so when we are in the Spirit, we hear. We hear what God has to say to us. You know, there are many reasons why we might not be hearing the voice of the Lord, um, and, you know, there, like I said, there are many reasons. One may be that we just are not walking in the Spirit. I can guarantee you, when you're walking in the flesh, don't expect to hear God's voice. Now, I'm not saying you won't because God, as an act of grace, will speak to us even when we are in the flesh. But when we're walking in the Spirit, we hear what God has to say to us. In fact, this is what Jesus says at the end of every letter to each church that he spoke to, he or she who has an ear to hear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, are you listening for the voice of God? I'd said to you today a quote uh, from uh, a poet, attention is the beginning of devotion, attention is the beginning of devotion, 
Attention is the beginning of devotion. I had people come and say, Pastor, I just can't hear the voice of God. You know, it's as if God's not speaking to me anymore. What's wrong with God? Where'd he go? And I say, well, how much time are you spending in the word? Well, I don't have time. I don't have time for the Bible. I'm a very busy person. Let me tell you all the things that I'm so busy with. And it's like, hey, listen, if you don't have time to give God your attention, don't expect to hear him. We want to have lives, hearts that are devoted to the Lord. And that begins by giving him our full attention. Jesus said this, man, a quote from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The second thing I think that we learn from John as he lays a, a pattern out for us is that he turned. Not only did he hear, but he turned. It's an interesting way that John puts it. Then I turned to see the voice. We'll talk about that last phrase in a second. But the second thing that we see John do, uh, you know, a man who uh, was filled with inspiration, a man who was blessed to have revelation, is this, that he turned. And so I would say to you that when we are in the Spirit, when we're in the Spirit of the Lord, this is what we do. We turn when He speaks to us. The voice of Jesus requires a response. Now, you put yourself in a position where, where you've dedicated your attention because your heart is full of devotion. But listen, that's not the end of the story. When he does speak, when he graces you with a special word from his word or a time in prayer where you know beyond a shadow of a doubt he's just dropped a, a, a beautiful revelation bomb right in your lap, the expectation is that you and I will turn our hearts to him. The voice of the Lord requ requires a response in our lives. Maybe that voice is uh, a word of conviction. Maybe by grace he has... He has shown his light on an area of our heart that we need to bring to him in repentance. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe our hearts have been discouraged and we've had, as it were, just a dark cloud over our life. And so what does he do? But just like I said, by a work of grace, he brings a word of encouragement. Listen, don't, don't turn your heart away from the word of encouragement that God desires to bring to you. Receive it. Receive it as a gift. Maybe it's a special revelation. I, I love what John does. He turns towards Jesus. And really, that ought to always be our disposition towards him when he's speaking to us. Our lives need to be turned towards him. He says, I turned to see the voice. Now, it's just an int interesting phrase, you know, and, and commentators and scholars alike really are a little semi-befuddled as to why it is that John says that he turned to see the voice. Um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but I think what John is simply saying is, I turned to set my eyes on him. And you know, what I do love about this beautiful revelation is it encompassed all of his senses. It encompassed all of his senses. It encompassed his intellect. It encompassed his, his auditory senses. It encompassed his visual senses. I mean, it was an overwhelming, altogether complete revelation that John really was wholly brought into. What a beautiful revelation it was that Jesus gave of himself. And when he turned, the first thing that he describes are the seven golden lampstands. Now, you know, when he says lampstands, he's talking about menorahs. Uh, they're golden, and there are seven of them. 
And what's going to happen here is Jesus is going to interpret what these lampstands are. So I just want you to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that in verse 20. So as John turns around, there's this beautiful voice uh, as of many waters that he hears. He sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, so right in the very center of all of them, what he sees is one like the Son of Man. Now we know, you know if you've read ahead, if you've cheated and you've read ahead, how <laughs> shame on you, um, or maybe you've read it before, in that case, not shame on you, um, we're obviously talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But to begin this expression of revelation, he identifies Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, of course, when we see the phrase Son of Man, we know that oftentimes that deals with the humanity. It refers to the humanity of Christ. Jesus is unlike any other person who's ever walked the face of the earth uh, in many ways, but in this way for sure, he was fully man and he was fully God. In theological terms, this is called the hypostatic union. Both of those natures uh, operating simultaneously in full effect in one person. The Son of Man often refers to the humanity of Jesus Christ, and his humanity is important. This is really not uh, the focal point of our study tonight, but because he was a man, if you read the book of Hebrews, you know there's so much import to his humanity. He was tempted as we are in all ways, yet he was without sin. And because he endured temptation, he's able to identify and understand our weaknesses. And because he's able to do that, he has qualified to be our high priest. He is the only one who can stand between an unrighteous humanity and a righteous God. But having said all of that, John is not really talking about the aspect of his humanity when he refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. He is probably keying in on the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Um, and what you, what you learn as you study the scriptures is, uh, as the scripture does present Jesus as the Son of Man, that phrase typically deals with his second coming. In fact, 21 out of the 84 times just in case you're interested in these details, 21 out of the 84 times the phrase son, the Son of Man occurs, it is in fact referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, I would encourage you later on to check out Daniel chapter 7 because Daniel himself was given this beautiful revelation. I want to share with you just verse 13 tonight. Daniel says this, I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And so we have from the Old Testament the same language that's spoken of in the New Testament in the book of Revelation concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, where is Jesus? Jesus is in the midst of the seven lampstands, and I'm just going to jump ahead for a minute here. Those seven lampstands represent the seven churches that he is going to be giving letters to. Where is Jesus? Is he just above them? Is he underneath them? Is he on the outside of them? In this particular revelation that John has given, he is right in the center of all of the seven churches. Now, you're going to notice as we get into these seven churches, and we'll probably take a, a letter a, a night. We're not going to rush through the seven letters. But you're going to notice that I mean, five out of the seven churches are really messed up. In fact, there are only two ch churches that Jesus doesn't correct. 
Smyrna and Philadelphia. The other churches are like off the rails, off the rails in idolatry, off the rails in allowing uh, uh, adultery and fornication within their ranks, off the rails in being busy about religious things, but having left their first love. And so, you know, really, like I said, these seven churches are representative of all of the churches. And it is important for us to remember that it's not as if Jesus was just close to one church and not another church. It's not like Jesus was hanging out with one denomination and not another denomination. Jesus was in the midst of all of the churches. You know, sometimes in our church world, we can be hypercritical and we can be super judgmental about other churches and their ministry philosophies and denomination versus non-denomination and do you dunk or do you sprinkle and, you know, are there gifts, aren't there gifts? I'm not saying that last one's not important. You know, all of those things are important. But if we're not careful, what happens is this, we begin to look at our brand right? We begin to look at our form, our way, the way that we do things. I mean, for sure we have, we have an affection towards it. Otherwise, we'd be at some other church. But if we're not careful, what we start to do is we begin to lift up ourselves at the expense of other churches, and we can almost give off this air that Jesus hangs out with us more than he does anybody else. And that's why this picture that John gives, I think, is just a good reminder. You know, he is in the middle of all of the churches. He's in the midst of the ones who are wearing their masks. He is in the midst of the ones who aren't wearing their masks. He is in the midst of the ones who are pro-vaccine. He might be, no, I'm just joking. (laughs) He is in the midst of the ones who might be anti-vaccine. Listen, he knows those who are called by his name. And it is important for us, I do believe, to remember that. He goes on to say, and this is just the important, this is the piece here that I would encourage you to meditate on later on. Uh, He says this, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with the garment down to the feet. So the first thing and I love how John just, man, he really does take his time. He's got this beautiful revelation. And, then, and, you know, it's not as if he hasn't seen the glory of the Lord before. In fact, the last time uh, in, before the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he saw the glory of the Lord was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And, you know, when he saw Jesus in the midst of uh, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. You know, his heart was probably just like Peter's heart. Good for us to make a tabernacle. Good for us to hang out for a while right here. No need to go down the mountain, Lord. Like this is just a special moment and we want to stretch it out as long as we can. John was not the one saying that on the Mount of Transfiguration, but I have a feeling like that was his heart in this moment, you know, because he just very carefully and patiently describes obediently, because this was the command of Christ, the revelation of Jesus that he saw. And I just want to go through each of these descriptions uh, and give you um, some possible ideas as to what they mean. Number one is this. He was this, the son of man, was clothed with the garment down to the feet. Um, that garment, you'll, you'll notice clothed with the garment down to his feet, representing his righteousness. 
He is absolutely righteous in all of his ways and with respect to who he is. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Jeremiah that Jesus, the Messiah, is Yahweh Tzidkenu, and that Hebrew word means righteousness. He is God, our righteousness. Somebody else say amen to that tonight, like collectively. Awesome. Thank you so much. Not only that, number two, he is girded about the chest with a golden band. Probably that golden band, of course, gold represents deity, and this band most likely represents truth. He is altogether and in every way, the way, the truth, and the life. Hey, in this life, you're going to get lied to by many, many people. But one thing for sure, you will never get lied to by Jesus Christ because he is absolutely true. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Of course, wise represents uh, purity. White, excuse me, represents purity. It represents wisdom. Uh, As I read these words, I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, where God says, Come, let us reason together, though your your sin, though your skins, Though your skins, though your sins be as scarlet, you will be as white as snow. And then he says to them, if they would just respond to the revelation that they would be as, as white as wool. And so, so in a way, what we see here is that he has the power of purity. He is altogether pure in all of his ways. White also, the white hair representing his wisdom. Jesus Christ in him is the embodiment of all of the wisdom of God. Maybe tonight you need wisdom. Maybe there are decisions that you have to make and you need to know which direction to head. You're not left to yourself, thank God, if you're a child of God. You're not left to a list of pros and cons. You're not left to just a matter of trial and error. No, you have the Holy One that you can go to who is altogether wise and wants to be that voice behind you saying, as the book of Isaiah says, this is the way, walk ye in it. His head and hair were as white as wool. I am reminded as well of the words of John the baptizer when he said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the perfect lamb of God without spot and without blemish. As he continues his revelation, he says, Uh, in verse 14, that his eyes were like a flame of fire. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine looking at this revelation of Jesus Christ into his very eyes? You know, uh, Peter looked into the eyes of Christ. You remember after he denied Jesus three times and the cock crowed, the rooster crowed, and Peter was there in the court of Caiaphas with John having gained some uh, some entrance And Jesus had warned Peter that Satan desired to sift him as wheat. And you remember, Peter said, even if all of these, even if all of these reject you and and abandon you, I will never abandon you. And so Jesus says to him, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Something that Peter could have never imagined in his wildest dreams, that he would have such great weakness within himself. You know, uh, sometimes we can be so blind to our weaknesses. And oftentimes, you know, we can be in this place where, where what we perceive to be our strengths are, in fact, our greatest weaknesses. Because sometimes it's in those areas, you know, those areas where we say, oh, I'll never do that. I'll never fall in that area. 
I'll never commit that sin. I don't even remotely struggle with that thing. I've got that issue pretty much under wraps. And so because we, ha we have this perceived strength, what we begin to do is not trust the Lord in that area. And we can find ourselves just like Peter, ultimately doing things that we never thought we would do. And conversely, I would say to you that sometimes our areas of known weakness are in fact the strongest areas of our life because we are so utterly and absolutely dependent upon the Lord. We know apart from the grace of God, there, there we ourselves will go and we will go in short order. And so knowing that weakness compels us, and the truth is this, apart from Jesus Christ, we aren't strong in anything. Apart from Jesus Christ, we aren't strong in anything. Or in other words, we need his help with everything. Peter, Pete, the Bible says that in the moment that he denied Jesus for the third time and the rooster crowed, the Bible says in Luke's account that his eyes met the eyes of Christ. And, and the scripture tells us that Peter went away weeping bitterly. Now, this is the strongest Greek word for weeping that exists. There are multiple words that we tr translate into English weep, but this means convulsive weeping. What was it that Peter saw when he looked into the eyes of Jesus? Was it condemnation? Was, was Jesus giving that look of condemnation to, to Peter? Like, really, Peter? I told you so, you, you loser. Like, really? And I said to you, you know, that upon this rock, don't confuse that tonight. I'm not saying that he is the rock. But I'm saying to you, let me say something else. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. I said that to you. And now are you kidding me, Peter? After all we've been through, after all I've done for you, I don't think it was a look of condemnation. I, I don't think it was a, a look of surprise because Jesus knew, right? Does Jesus know your failure before you fail? Look, you might be shocked. <laughs> Jesus isn't shocked. I'm not saying he's happy with it. I'm not saying that the absence of shock means that he's, he's, not, he's not righteously upset. But I don't even think it was necessarily that with Peter. I think that Peter looked into the eyes of Christ and saw love. That's what he saw. He saw eternal love. In fact, this was the message of Jesus to Peter when he was restored some days later. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times he says that to Peter. And Peter's response to Jesus is, is simply that. It is a response. It is a response of love because his own heart had been loved by the Lord. Why am I saying all of this? Because I think that when John sees eyes that are like a flame of fire, not only does that refer to the omniscience of Christ, that he sees all things. He sees through all things. He's, he sees through behind the closed door. He sees through the, the different ways you've hidden it on your computer and your iPhone. He sees through the lies and the deception that, you're, that you or me or we can so easily pull on other people. He sees through it all. But I think that what John saw was eyes that burned with love for him. I think that that's what that means, that there, there are eyes, eternal eyes that are set upon you tonight that burn with love for you. I don't know how you framed the Lord in your life. 
When I say to you that he, he sees all things, the Bible says all things are naked before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And of course, what does that produce within us? It produces some serious godly fear, not because we are afraid that he's going to abandon us or he's going to cast us off, but because we know he has this eternal, relentless love for us. I hope that that blesses you tonight. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Verse 15, his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. So brass, you'll notice in the book of Revelation and throughout scripture represents judgment. And you'll notice as John is kind of considering him from head to toe, that when he gets down to the feet, it's the feet that are like fine brass, pure, right? Refined in a, in a furnace, absolutely free of any impurity. And I would remind all of us tonight that, that Jesus is just that. He is just. He is absolutely just in all of his ways. It is impossible for him to act in some sort of way that is unjust. There's no impurity with those things that he decides. And while on the one hand that's a blessing, also I would say that that is something to be feared. In his second coming, the Bible says in the book of Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, that he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus is full of eternal love, but he is also not to be trifled with. In other words, you want to be on the right side. You want to be on the right side of the Lord. Look, faith in Jesus Christ is the very thing that is going to determine where you spend your eternity. You'll either spend it in heaven with him because you've trusted in the sacrifice he made on the cross for you and his resurrection from the dead, as we're going to talk about in just a minute, or you're going to deny the revelation that he's given to you. You're going to resist. You're going to choose to do it your own way. You're going to live your life in a way where you have the freedom to make your own decisions and, and sow your oats however you desire to. But understand tonight that apart from a living relationship with the person of Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity in condemnation, separated from God. The Bible says there's only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Not only that, as John is going through this revelation, he also says in verse 15, his voice was as of the sound of many waters. How many of you guys have been near a raging waterfall before? Raise your hand. Raise it high. Let me see. Oh, look at that. Lots of people here going to Hawaii. Was that, is that where you saw the waterfall? Some of you were in Israel, you know, with us, you know, as we hike uh, back into Tel Dan, uh, we, we visit three of the headwaters that feed into the Sea of Galilee. And you know what it's like, man, when you, when you stand next to a raging waterfall, like you can barely even have a conversation because the sound of the water is just so immense. It's so powerful. You know, we had a, we've had two pretty raging storms in Las Vegas uh, over the summer. By the way, I will thank God for the monsoons that we've had. I mean, it's been like a whole decade since we've had storms over the summer here in Las Vegas. But there's been a couple storms where the, the rain literally was pounding so hard on our house 
that it was almost difficult to hear each other speak. And you know, when water falls, right? When water falls with that type of power, I mean, it's, it is a little overwhelming. And I, I think this is the way that John is describing it. You know, his voice was of the sound, not of one waterfall or not of one torrential downpour, but as of many waters, maybe this reflecting the omnipotence of Jesus Christ, that he is in fact all powerful. You know, uh, flip over to Psalm 29 with me tonight real quick. By the way, we dig deeper on Sunday nights. It's a deep dive into uh, these books of the Bible. So there are times where I'm going to say, turn in your Bible. That means don't be passive. Don't just sit there and wait for me to read. This is so good. David is talking about the voice of the Lord, and I just wanted to read this to you, a portion of it at least, ah, maybe all of it. The Bible says, verse 1, give unto the Lord, you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says what? The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Man, if the church today needs to hear anything, it for sure is not another person's opinion. It is not some person's podcast. It is the voice of the Lord. May God graciously grant us in an unrestrained way the power of his voice once again. In his right hand were seven stars. And let me just, let me just tell you what this is. That represents one of two things. We're either talking, the word uh, that Jesus is going to use concerning the seven stars is, is angelos in the Greek, which simply means me messenger. Sounds familiar to you because it's where we get our, our English word angel from. So it's possible that when he's speaking of the seven stars, for sure he's speaking of a messenger, it's possible he's either speaking of an angel that's been dedicated to one of the seven churches or he is talking about a particular church leader that has been responsible to lead the people and to teach the people. In his right hand, the Bible says in verse 16, in his right hand are the seven stars, not underneath his feet in the sense of just treading under, but lovingly having authority over either these unique angels that had a specific responsibility to each church or to these particular church leaders. In just a minute, I'll tell you what my opinion is. Out of his mouth, when a sharp two-edged sword, uh, this, of course, this two-edged sword represents the word of God. And we're going to see this uh, demonstrated so powerfully when we consider Revelation chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Not to be overcomplicating things tonight, but there are a couple of Greek words that we translate into our English word sword. Typically, you know, if you're a Greek soldier or a Roman soldier, you, a Greek soldier, a Thracian soldier for sure, you had two swords. One was a short sword, which was used for hand-to-hand combat. The other was a long sword that was used when your enemies were at some distance. Uh, this was a long, heavy sword that was, that was capable of dealing a death blow with one single shot. So of the two swords that we could be talking about here, we know that this is referring to that Thracian sword, that, that heavy sword that brings a fatal blow, which is going to be demonstrated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's go on here. He goes on to say, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, blazing, almighty power of the Lord. Like, you know, we know what it feels like to be under uh, the sun when it's shining in all of its strength here in Las Vegas. 117 degrees out is like so powerful, it's almost unbearable. And I think he's just simply saying that there's no one like the Lord. He is almighty in all of his ways. Verse 17, and when I saw him, how did John respond? He gave Jesus a fist bump, you know, give him a little chest bump. Say, what's up, homie? What's up, home dog? Where you been, man? Where you been? What you been doing lately? Like, how's it hanging in heaven? That's what I want to know. What's going on up there? Like, you know, give me the goods. I, I want to just get some hang time. Throw some fish on the barbie like you did last time we were chilling together. How about some of that action? You know, that's not what John does. Tongue in cheek here tonight. I just want you to know this. this is so good. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I fell at his feet as dead. You know, we are living in a, in a church age that has really emphasized the humanity of Jesus Christ. And let me just say this before I say anything else. Sometimes, sometimes the church swings in like a pendulum in extremes. By that, I simply mean sometimes it's like, man, there's such a heavy emphasis. Like, let's just talk about the hypostatic union of Jesus. Sometimes there's such a heavy emphasis on his deity that we have completely lost sight of his humanity. And then at other times, there's such an overemphasis on his humanity that we have lost sight of his deity. And sometimes the church swings back and forth, which is why it's important for us to be very cognizant of how the church, where the church is at on that pendulum that it's swinging on because we always want to find ourselves in balance, right? Right now, the church in some ways is kind of swinging heavily towards the humanity of Jesus Christ, which, like I said before, of course is important. And, you know, part of, part of what we experience because of his humanity is that he is our high priest, that he made a, a bodily sacrifice for us. If he was not incarnate, we would not be saved. But sometimes what that engenders at the expense of his deity is a lack in our lives of the fear of the Lord. Hey, you know what? It's easy for me just to deconstruct. It's easy for me just to change my opinions. It's easy for me to to pick and choose what I want to pick and choose from the Bible. You know, maybe I don't want to believe that he died on the cross for me, but you know what? God won't judge me anyway. No, no, this is what's happening right now. There is such a freedom in in the minds of so many because they've lost sight of the deity of Jesus Christ, 
that there really seems to be no longer a fear of the Lord in their lives, right? Sometimes I think that we endeavor so hard to make Jesus relatable that we make him so human, we forget that he is God. And it's verses like this that remind us, you know, John, what did he do? What was his response? Man, he fell at the feet of Jesus as if he was dead. In other words, he did not move. He was standing in the presence of almighty power. Yes, almighty love, but almighty power and almighty justice. And you know, this is not just what John did. This is typical of those who received revelation of Jesus. I think of Saul of Tarsus. You remember that light that was shining on his way to Damascus. What did John, what did Saul do? He fell on his face. He fell on his face before the Lord. I think about Isaiah as he was caught up into the very throne of God and and the, the seraphim were circling around the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is he who was and who is and who is to come. And you remember as he saw all of that, he said to the Lord, he said, depart from me. I'm a, I'm a wicked man. And then God, you know, in his grace, had an angel take a coal from the altar and he purged the lips of Isaiah so Isaiah could be his messenger. When we are truly in the presence of the Lord, it does not engender us to pride or to, to disregard the holiness of God. It produces within us a humility. This is why whenever there is a real revival poured out among God's people and the lost, it is always typified by repentance, because God is revealing himself to us. This is not just a move in the culture. This is not just some new fad that's starting that people are being drawn to. No, it is the revelation of God himself. And when God reveals himself, it produces a humility within us. And this is what we do. We humble ourselves before him. And maybe even like John, this morning somebody came to me and said, man, pastor, the spirit of God was moving so powerfully this morning. All I could do was get on my knees before the Lord. And I say, man, that's when we know the Lord is moving among us. How good of it, how good of, how good is it of Jesus? He says this, but he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. So what does he do? He lays his right hand on John and just encourages him. Hey, listen, do not be afraid. Easy for Jesus, Jesus to say. Maybe a little more difficult for John to receive, but these are the words of Christ assuring his apostle. He says, and this is important. Let me just dial this in real quick. He says, I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. Important words that Jesus says, because you know only God can say, I am the first and the last. Only God can say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness and you know they pull out their Bible, New World Translation, uh, and you know they have pilfered the scriptures, They've changed the Bible to, to reinforce their idea that Jesus is not God. 
um, that he is one of many gods. But you know, in all of the, their pilfering, they forgot this portion of scripture. So can I just equip you just for a moment in case someone comes knocking at your door? Because this is just so good. He says here in verse 17, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So you say, well, who, who is speaking here? Well, Jesus is speaking. Well, where else in the Bible does someone say that he is the first and the last? I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 41. Let me give you three verses here. Undeniable that Jesus himself declared to be God. Okay. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4. Turn there with me. I'll wait. Waiting. Isaiah chapter 41. That's in your Old Testament, by the way. Hang left, almost to the center of your Bible. Verse 4, chapter 41, three verses from Isaiah, all right? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Turn right, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6. The Bible says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Pretty clear, right? Isaiah chapter 48. Keep going to the right. Verse 12. Well, let's start in verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Hey, listen, when God moves in our lives, please let's be sure not to take any glory for ourselves. And I will not give my glory to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Je back to Revelation. Jesus is God. Verse 18. He says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Just want to remind you to tonight, I know that you know this is true, but let me just say it again. Jesus rose again from the dead. He was the one who was dead, crucified on the cross for our sins, buried in a tomb, gloriously, victoriously, powerfully resurrected on the third day. As the disciples came to the tomb, the angel said, why do you seek the living of, among the dead? He is not here for he is risen. He is victorious. He has the keys of Hades and of death. He has swallowed up the power of death. As the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen. Now listen, um, oftentimes when I teach the book of Revelation, I start with ver verse 19 because this really is uh, the outline of the book, very simple outline. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So, you know, Revelation is a, is a very interesting book. It's the only book that comes with its own divinely inspired outline. And this is the outline. The things which you have seen, 
Chapter 1, this beautiful revelation that he's been given, which, was he, which he was obedient to share. The things which are, so seven letters to seven real historical churches, chapters 2 to chapter 3. And the things which will take place after this. And we'll notice beginning in chapter 4, there's a very unique phrase that uh, connects to this final phrase of verse 19, after this, metatauta. Uh, so the last section in the divine outline is chapter 4 to chapter 22. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, colon. All right, so, hey, when you have a hard time understanding scripture, I just want to say that the Bible itself is the best tool to help you to understand the Bible. The Bible is, in itself, the best tool to help you understand the Bible. So, you could have started, you know, these verses and reading this revelation thinking, man, the stars, the lampstands, I don't know what they are, but, you know, let's come up with some great ideas. The stars could be Pleiades and Orion and, and no, you're wrong, all right? You're just wrong because Jesus himself says what the stars are and what the lampstands are. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So we're not left... Uh, to our own subjective, you know, ability to allegorize the Bible or come up with our own ideas, Jesus himself says that the seven stars are those seven messengers and the seven golden lampstands are, in fact, the seven churches that he is in the midst of. That lampstand, of course, you know, uh, in the Jewish culture was the menorah, seven-branched candlestick. Um, this was the lampstand that was in uh, the holy place. If you walked into the holy place as the high priest or as, as one of the officiating priests, you would make sure that the cups on the lampstand were all filled with oil because those uh, lights that were emanating from the seven branches needed to be constantly burning in the holy place. They represented the light of God burning through the nation of Israel. God being the light. And so we have this beautiful picture of the Spirit of God empowering His people, the church, to live with His light shining through our lives. So let men see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We ought to be shining the light of the Lord. Beautiful revelation tonight of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to take some time this week and just meditate on this and uh, let his beauty really seep into your heart. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this extraordinary revelation of your son. Thank you tonight that he is omnipotent, that he is almighty and true, that he is altogether wise, that he is absolutely pure in all of his ways. He's altogether just. Not a single act of injustice. Tonight we know that he is filled with eternal love for us. We know that he in fact is God. That he dwells in the midst of his churches. And that he rightfully deserves to dwell in the center of our lives. Lord, we, we have ears to hear tonight. 
We turn our hearts towards you as you speak to us. And we know that your divine revelation demands a response. And so this evening, as you have spoken to us, as you've revealed something to every heart here tonight, may it be matched. May it be matched by loving obedience, by a humility that's manifested in repentance. Lord, we do not want to offer any sacrifice on the altar of false religion. Some man-made artifice or institution. You alone are the Lord. You alone are worthy of our praise. We need to hear the power of your voice again. God, we know that your revelation is an act of love and grace. And tonight, collectively, we, we ask would you bring that revelation to bear in our hearts and our minds? Speak to us, Lord. If our attention has been distracted, we confess that to you tonight. If our hearts have been hardened, we pray for the oil of your spirit to soften us once again. If our eyes have been blinded, we pray that you would apply the balm tonight so that we could see you clearly. Lord Jesus, move, we pray, in the midst of your people. And we want that next week, and we want that tomorrow, but we need it tonight. We need it tonight. want to encourage you as we have this closing time of worship. This is for all of us to really renew our relationship with him. You might be soaring on the wings of eagles spiritually. There's still space for you to renew. I want to encourage us tonight to lean in to what he has to say. We would want to encourage you tonight to open up your heart to any revelation, to any word from the Spirit. Maybe even now there have been, been areas known to you that you've been resisting, you've been putting off, you've, been, you've really been pushing the Lord away. Stop pushing him away. Humble yourself tonight and receive the work that he desires to do. We're going to close tonight in some worship, and I want to encourage you this evening. You have the freedom tonight to just be on your knees before the Lord in worship right where you're at.
Sometimes, you know, it's, it's good for us when there's something that we need to lay down or let go of, you know, something that just we've given permission to in our lives that it just shouldn't be there. Sometimes it's good for us to have a moment at the altar and I want to encourage you tonight. You can, you can come to the front. You can, you can kneel before the Lord. You can give that thing that's burdened you to Him. It's been stealing from you. It's been stealing from you. It's been hurting you. It's been hurting your family. And tonight, it needs to go. You need his strength. You need his purifying power. You need to be renewed in his love. You need to be dipped in his spirit. You need to be saturated by his presence. Whatever he speaks to us tonight, Let's have one response. Yes, 